Pope district, you know the Pope listens. Dynasty, our religion, for the blokes missing. On all of these trades, on all of these plays, on all of these grades. By the end of the day, y'all getting played. So, what you gonna do next? Try to fill up that flex? Send the homie a text? That trash offers the best? You try to make it complex? Then they text you back, now all of a sudden they don't make any sense? <laughs> Broaden your horizons, boy. Dynasty's not for the Simons, boy. These trades not for consignment, boy. Respect your opponent, y'all some piranhas, boy. This my advice from me to you. Open up your cute little podcast queue. Search up G-O-A-T district, my dude. Pop it in your ear, man. Y'all know what to do. It's the... And I'll always be traded. Traded. And I'll always be traded. Traded. And I'll always be trading. Y'all try to betray them, but first you gotta bait them. Fish. All right, what is up, Fantasy Land? It is May 24th. We have been uh, three-plus weeks past the rookie draft, uh, almost four weeks from the rookie draft, and there's there's been a lot that's happened in the football world, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time with uh, Adam Harstead, who was on, what, about two months ago, I think, Adam? Does that sound right? Something like that. Okay. Sounds good. And, uh, you know, the, the environment has definitely changed since we've had the draft and everything else. So we're just going to check in with Adam, uh, see what he's thinking about the current lay of the land and uh, the NFL. And uh, welcome, Adam. We're, we're happy to have you on again. Thanks. Always happy to uh, to come on. Yeah, last time was was just a blast. And, um, you know, we had so much like stuff that we were kind of thinking about in the offseason coming. And now we have so much movement to talk about. We've got an NFL draft behind us. So many big player moves. It's going to be awesome to get a chance to sit down and talk with you about what you're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. We had uh, it was it was a little bit more of a theory conversation uh, last time. So we're gonna we're gonna try to bring things into the real world a little bit and uh, talk about some specific uh, you know player movement and uh, values and everything else and and uh, see what Adam's thinking about those. But uh, for sure, a fun show lined up tonight. Uh, First off, I, I guess Adam, what what did you think of the NFL draft as far as uh, you know the fantasy implications? Uh, any broad uh, themes that you saw, or anything that you saw that uh, was really interesting to you? Yeah, so I'm a draft uh, capital truther. Uh, I tend to believe that you know, however much time we spend on scouting players, the NFL spends more. They spend more money. They're probably better at it than us. Uh, so when guys get drafted that's really the starting point um you actually wanted to talk to me about rookies earlier in the process and i said i don't really have thoughts on rookies until they're drafted because i don't put in the work before the draft because the nfl is going to invalidate it pretty quickly anyway uh obviously the big thing in the draft this year was just how many receivers were drafted high um if you look at it from a draft capital standpoint this was the best receiver draft since 2014 um, pretty much at every point, I think like the number, the second receiver off the board was like one of the highest second receivers and the third receiver off the board was one of the highest third receivers. So I, if I had to venture a guess, I'm going to be walking out of my rookie drafts with a lot, a lot, a lot of receivers this year, um, which is fine by me. I, my teams are actually already kind of deep at receiver, but draft for talent, trade for need 
in the NFL has said pretty clearly that the talent this year is at receiver. Yeah, totally. Thoughts on that, Theo? No, I think I think we we t- we touched on this, um, you know, over the last few weeks um, since the draft happened. Um, it seems to kind of be a trend that NFL teams are really valuing the wide receiver position, um, and you're seeing these monster contracts coming in for the successful wide receivers. Um, Hollywood Brown's about to get a huge um, contract. Terry McLaurin's about to get a huge contract. So you're not just seeing the guys at the very top. You're seeing, you know, guys up into the wide receiver two range get these massive deals. Um, and I think that it's going to benefit teams the same way that it benefits teams to get quarterbacks on their first contract. I think it's going to benefit teams to get rookie wide receivers that are that are highly productive, uh, second-year wide receivers that are highly productive. So I think this is a trend that we'll see continue um, and they certainly like this um, wide receiver class maybe more than other positions in this class as well. So it's like a perfect storm for this, you know, massive, massive uh, wide receiver draft. And it's funny, like the, um, you know, you see guys getting drafted in like the third round um, that are not even getting drafted in like fantasy rookie drafts right now, like Danny Gray. And, you know, we saw how low Tyquan Thornton went. It's just there's so many wide receivers being drafted overall. Uh, that's kind of changing the landscape of rookie drafts as well. Yeah, on the subject of Tyquan Thornton, I am pretty confident I'm going to wind up with Tyquan Thornton somewhere because that's what I do. I mean, I had Philip Dorsett when nobody was going for Philip Dorsett any near, anywhere near. And then I had uh, Henry Ruggs, of course, I got. Um, and so people joke that I have that type, that little highly drafted speedster. And like, when am I going to learn my lesson? And then last year I took Jalen Waddle and everybody's like, oh, Harstad's back at it again. And then of course Waddle blows up. Um, so that's why I'm, like I said, that's why I'm a draft capital truther. Cause on the margins, I'm not going to draft the receivers in the exact order that they're drafted all the time on the margins. I think we can improve upon that because we care about different things than the NFL cares about. Um, and some of the advantage that those, those speedy guys give you doesn't really show up in the stat sheet. Um, which is good for NFL teams and bad for us in fantasy. But by and large, I'm I'm if there's a guy who's drafted that high, who's falling that late in rookie drafts, there's a pretty good shot he's gonna wind up on my teams. Yeah, we talked about him last week. Um a number of us on the GOAT district have been drafting the hell out of him, um, you know, adding as many shares as possible because you know he's going as high as you know mid third and as late as I've seen him go in a sixth round. So it's just yeah. like people are like, I know more than the Patriots. Um, I thought this guy would be a fifth, sixth round pick. So therefore, you know, I'm not going to draft him in my rookie drafts. It's just, it's just a ridiculous process. Yeah, I think a lot of people hold on to their priors there, um, for sure. Very much and then, so. And then also, you you also have the you know the hate for any Patriots drafted wide receiver. Um, you know, because yep. it's, it's been such a you know just a, a cesspool of non-value uh you know so with those two things together yeah taekwon thornton was kind of the, the perfect storm of the high draft capital taken by the wrong team and nobody liked him beforehand so yeah he's he's just cheap as heck uh, all the way through and uh wandale robinson i thought was um also surprisingly cheap uh yep. throughout rookie drafts as well uh from what and the, um dotson i'm saying is falling a lot too that, you know, like I've seen him, I'm seeing him fall into the second, um, even the mid-second. And I mean, no way I'm letting him past me. If I'm at the top of the second round, I, I 
have a hard time imagining a scenario where I'm not taking him if he's there. Yeah, I've seen um, – I, I think I've only seen one draft where Dotson went in the first round, actually. He's been yeah. more at the top of the second round, for sure. And, uh, you know, like Sky Moore is passing him up all the time. Uh, Pickens is passing him up all the time. Uh, Christian Watson passing him up all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it's pretty much 90% of your drafts, those three are going to go before uh, before Dotson goes. What are your and thoughts often on that? You're seeing, you think, you're, you think, seeing, you're seeing David Bell, too, uh, Dan. A, a oh, lot yeah, of times yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was just going to mention Bell that he's going shockingly high, and and every time I mention um, Dotson, some David Bell fan shows up with like breakout age and oh, you know, you like don't draft players who were not early declares, and and there's all these rules. And my thing is, um, I have a buddy. Uh, he's on Twitter at Seven Rounds in April. It's the number seven, and then the words Rounds in April. Um, uh, and he, his name's Rob. He did his um, master's practicum on for some statistics class on uh, a model that outperformed the NFL draft. Like he, it, and it's a pretty cool model. It does clustering stuff where instead of saying like this is good, this is bad, it'll look at um, players who are drafted and it'll say certain constellations of traits are valuable. Like like players who are big and fast, but their speed is very straight line oriented and they have slow, um, like shuttle drills and stuff like that. Like this archetype of player has been very successful. Um, and he had some success with that where he actually did, he got a, a professor to sign off saying like, yes, this model does outperform the NFL draft. Um, and I talked to him about it a lot and he's been working on the model and he says all the time that like stuff that used to be true, isn't true anymore. Like I picked out stuff in 2013 2014 where like wow the nfl is ignoring this this is a real inefficiency in the market and two years later it was gone because the nfl is all the nfl's hiring smart dudes to do this analysis too and they're finding the same inefficiencies we are so it might be true that four years ago you didn't want to draft players who were not early declares uh, but that doesn't mean it's true today because if it's that glaringly obvious where some guy with a Google Sheets and a Twitter account is catching on to it, odds are NFL teams are catching on to it too. Um, so that's my big thing. The efficient market hypothesis, which is what I subscribe to that, that says um, it was made for stock markets. Stock markets are relatively efficient, but the draft is also a relatively efficient market. Um, it's one of those theories where every time you disprove it, it just becomes stronger. It's like a zombie hypothesis. If you come up and you say, ha ha, here's a concrete example where the market is not efficient. The market says, oh, you're absolutely right. P.S. I'm now efficient on that. Um, so that's why I'm such a draft capital truther, because the inefficiencies, we, I, there are inefficiencies, but by the time we find them, a lot of times they're closing or the window's closed. Um, but draft capital is forever. One guy that um you know we we had really didn't draft um, too much at all um the four of us on the goat district is Christian Watson. I'm just curious what what your thoughts on him. You you brought up guys who are not early declares. He's he's an older wide receiver. Um you know he is from a smaller school, um but yet the the landing spot is is great and the draft capital was good. What what is your thought on thoughts on Christian Watson? 
yeah, the draft capital is good, which is the big thing for me. Uh, I'll tweak a little bit around the edges, but the majority of it is he's the 34th pick. He's a borderline first round draft pick. Um, landing spot I'm not super concerned about because uh, at the end of the day, like you said, with New England wide receivers, how many times when Tom Brady was there, people are drafting New England receivers high saying, oh, it's the perfect landing spot. It's the perfect landing spot. He's going to be with Tom Brady for the next eight years. If you're not good, the landing spot doesn't matter. If you are good, the landing spot doesn't really matter. I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, like Terry McLaurin was in pretty much the worst possible scenario and he's been producing, he's been productive because he's good. Um, I do like small school guys who get drafted high. Uh, I don't know if this is real or not, but I feel like there's a bias against small school players in the NFL. Uh, so when a, when a small school guy gets drafted that high, to me, that's a big stamp of approval. Um, so yeah, I like, I like Watson. Um, I don't know if I do. I don't think I draft him over Dotson. Um, I could even see I people like Sky more than Watson, and I'm kind of okay with that. That's within the range where like, ah, that seems like a reasonable opinion. You know, they're not drafted that far apart. I think, yeah, they're 20 picks apart. Um, I, I'm kind of going to have to see who my drafts, how my drafts are going to shake out. Cause I never really know who I'm going to get other than a situation where like Taekwon Thornton, where I know he's going to fall like two rounds past where his draft capital says he should go. I never really know who I'm going to walk out of a draft with. It's always, that's the nice thing about being a draft capital truther is a lot of people know who they love, but I don't know who I love until after the draft is over. And then I know who I love. <laughs> Shout out to Kevin Wheeler in the chat. Um, how many wide receivers would you draft before Kenneth Walker based on where, you know, Kenneth Walker's landing spot in Seattle, you know where he went. Um, you brought up a lot of the wide receivers going early. Um, how would you rate, I'm assuming is Brees Hall your 101 in rookie drafts? Yes. So assuming Brees Hall's one, what would kind of be the next few guys um, and where would Kenneth Walker place? Uh, I'm totally fine with him at two. It kind of depends. Um League by league. Uh, I have one of my leagues is um, 10 teams start one, two, three, one with no flex um, and it's yardage heavy, but no PPR. And so that one skews really, really running back heavy. And in that league, if I had a top two pick, I'm taking Brees and Walker. That's there's really no doubt about that at all. Um, in my other league, which is a more standard start one, two, three, one and a flex PPR. Um, I could see Walker at two. I could see I probably Drake London would be my top wide receiver. Uh, I could see him at two. Um, I haven't really dug into. I mean, it's a little academic for me because I, I my highest pick is four. So uh, and and Walker's probably not falling to me there. Um, I think that's one where I don't have a strong enough opinion to say this is the right answer. This is the wrong answer. I think any preference in either direction is totally justifiable there. Totally makes sense. So you, you have uh, Drake London uh, kind of nominally as your, your top wide receiver. It sounds like. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I like, I like all four of the top guys, London, Wilson, Olave and Williams. Um, how about Burks? I guess and Burks. Burks. Yeah. 
I don't know. Um, that's on my to-do list because, like I said, I have the number four pick, and I'm assuming Hall and Walker are going to be gone, um, and maybe Drake London at three, and then uh, I think it's very interesting who to take at four there. Uh, normally, Burks would not really be on my radar um, just because the other guys are good prospects, and they were drafted before him, um, and they're good prospects. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reason to like um, Wilson and Williams and Olave. Um, the one interesting thing about Burks is just that he's probably the best bet to be productive as a rookie. And if he's productive as a rookie, he's probably the best bet to be the most valuable a year from now um, out of those four, assuming, assuming London's off the table. Uh, because, I mean, I think we like to think that we're doing all these complex calculations, but a lot of times dynasty value is how productive was this guy last year and how young is this guy? Um, and if Traylon Burks is wide receiver 24 as a rookie, he's going to be really highly drafted. So that would be the one interesting thing there. And I, I don't, I don't even know if I'll know until I'm on the clock, whether I'm going to opt for the um, slightly better prospect in my opinion or the guy with that really interesting year one opportunity yep and you mentioned uh, you, met, you mentioned uh jameson williams um and mm -hmm. garrett wilson as well maybe kind of mm -hmm. share your thoughts on them anything aside from the the landing spot and draft capital yeah no i don't really have a whole lot of thoughts outside of um the draft capital i don't e i don't even really care about landing spot i just um care about the draft capital um, some of the guys who I know and like who do have thoughts, give them the stamp of approval, uh, which is all I'm looking for. Um, someone like Matt Waldman or Matt Harmon to come along and say, yeah, this kid can play. I mean, I have no problem with him being drafted where he's drafted. Okay, cool. If he's got the stamp of approval, um, then, then I like them. Um, in terms of draft capital, like I said, it, I'm not fanatical where like, Wilson was drafted and then Olave and then Williams. And that's going to be my order. Um, the difference between the 10th pick and the 12th pick is negligible. Uh, I mean, really with Drake London too, the difference between the eighth pick and the 12th pick is negligible. Uh, I could see taking any four of those guys in any order. I think without having to justify yourself, that's all well within the Overton window for me. Um, like I said, I take London first just because he's got a lot of that good year one opportunity um, in addition to the draft capital. So he's got the best capital and the best early opportunity. In terms of landing spot, things just change too fast. I mean, I remember when A.J. Brown was drafted in Tennessee and he was falling in rookie drafts because his quarterback was Marcus Mariota and Tennessee was a, you know, was like a low wattage offense and oh maybe he's good you know he we all liked him as a prospect but you know how's anybody going to be successful in tennessee and that lasted all of like eight weeks and then that was gone and out the window um, and i've seen a lot of research on this that the the situation a player's drafted in has virtually no correlation with his career outcomes if you're not good it doesn't matter if you're in the best situation ever a little bit for running backs, you know, like Zach Stacy got drafted in the fifth round to a place where there were just no other running backs on the roster and he was productive. But for the most part, especially at wide receiver, if you're not good, it doesn't matter if you got drafted with Tom Brady as your quarterback for the next eight years. It doesn't matter. If you are good, 
it doesn't matter if you're fourth on the depth chart uh, behind like three Pro Bowl receivers and your quarterback is like a 38-year-old journeyman. That doesn't matter either. I call it the Dr. Ian Malcolm hypothesis after um, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park, uh, you know, where he's like, uh, life finds a way. And that's the thing. If you're good, you're going to get yours sooner than people think. If you're not good, you're not ever going to get yours. So on the margins, maybe landing spot matters. But at the end of the day, all that matters is, is this player going to be good in the NFL or not? Yep, for sure. For sure. So um, I I don't know if this question will make sense to you yet or not, but uh, do you think there are any best values in rookie drafts so far this year? From what you've seen, it sounds like you haven't done your rookie drafts at all yet. So mine are typically pretty late, which I like. Um, I really like it because then there's it. It's time for people to get a little silly. I like the early drafts when people are still too hung up on their pre-draft evaluations and they haven't really adjusted to the new reality yet, and you can get some good values there. And then I like really late drafts where like Odell Beckham was drafted 12th overall by the NFL. And then he like is dealing with like some, I forget what even the issue was in preseason. And he's going to miss a couple games to start his rookie year. And he's in like free fall in rookie drafts. And I'm like, do the first four games of his rookie season really matter that much to you in a player's dynasty value? Like, what is this? Why is he falling six spots from May to August just because he's dealing with like some, I don't even remember what it was like hamstring tightness or something. Yeah. I um, so I really like those late rookie drafts. There's there's always some weird stuff that opens up. Um, I think like the middle rookie drafts, I don't know, tend to be sharper because we've had time to think through everything, but we haven't had time to overthink everything. Um, so yeah, in terms of good values, I see Dotson falling a lot. I see um, Wandale falling a lot. Um, and I have thoughts on the whole wide receiver size thing. Um, uh, it's hard to say too much beyond that. I usually get, um, and then people say this is a humble brag, but I'm going to say straight up, this is not a humble brag. This is a brag. I'm usually drafting very late in the round. Um, and usually very late in the second round, my go-to move is to get uh, very, very highly drafted quarterbacks or tight ends. Um, and if you look back I've, over the years, I've gotten like Deshaun Watson and, um, Baker Mayfield and Jameis Winston and um, like Pat Mahomes. And like there's the guys, the quarterbacks that go in the late second in single quarterback rookie rookie drafts tend to do a lot better than like the long shot wide receivers and uh, running backs. It does not look like this is going to be the class for that. That's probably not going to be my go-to move this year. Um, maybe I can get Trey McBride. Um, cause he's at one of those singlet positions. Um, but otherwise, I mean, the running backs, especially outside of Brees and maybe Kenneth Walker just aren't that good this year. The quarterbacks look awful this year. Um, tight ends, nothing really that inspiring. Like I'm happy to take Trey McBride in the second round of rookie drafts, but other than that, it's just not that exciting. Um, so I really think I'm just going to be getting a lot of wide receivers. I mean, we'll see how the draft falls. I never know until after the draft, but I, I think this is the year to just hammer, hammer, hammer the wide receivers. 
Yeah, totally makes sense. And uh, while, while we're kind of around that subject, um, 1912 Fantasy has a question. How how long would you keep a player with high draft capital on your team roster that isn't producing? Um, I.e. Thornton this year, Eskridge, Amari Rogers, Marshall, et cetera, last year. So so I guess 1912 thinks Thornton is not going to produce this year. Uh, that's the, that's my takeaway. Uh, but how, how long do you keep guys like that? Like I have uh, several shares of uh, Terrace Marshall uh, scattered around on dynasty rosters. Uh, what, what are your general <laughs> thoughts on that? I'll say last time Adam was extremely harsh to Terrace Marshall and even harsher to Josh Palmer. Uh, I don't know. We won't even bring up Josh Palmer, but go ahead and talk a little. Terrace no, Mar- Marshall's <laughs> worse than Palmer. It, it's oh, wow. just Palmer kind of flew under the radar. Yeah. Marshall had, I think like the second or third worst rookie season since 2006 by my model. It's bad. Marshall, I would be, if I could get anything for him, I would. Um, and if I'm wrong on that, I'm wrong on that. But like, it's just atrocious. The company found himself in with his usage rate and yards per route run as a rookie. Palmer was bad, but he was like bottom 20 bad and not bottom three bad. Um, but he kind of flew under the radar and people are, I think, giving him more of a pass because of Justin Herbert, which is a real thing. It, rookie wide receivers tend to get a mulligan. Um, and I say I love investing in rookie wide receivers because they get that mulligan, where if they're bad as a rookie, you can pivot off and you can recoup most of the costs that you spent to acquire them. Um, because somebody out there is always going to be like, well, he was bad, but he was a rookie. People underestimate players who are good are usually good fast. I mean, if not first year, second year, uh, usually they're showing signs by the first year. And, and even if they're not super productive, you know, at least they're mildly efficient. At least they're getting on the field. Very rarely do you have a wide receiver who winds up being good, who isn't at least showing signs in year one. And very rarely do you have any player at any position who winds up being good, who isn't at least startable in year two. Um, So I don't tend to give a very long leash. I think that's a mistake people make is giving too long of a leash and not being ready to pull the cord on a guy. Um and that's just my roster in general. I mean, most guys on my roster don't stick around for more than two years, rookies, vets, whoever. I'm just constantly, um, not even intentionally, it's not like I'm setting out to, oh, this guy's been on my roster for two years, let's get rid of him. Oh, there's a little bit of that. But I'm just always, uh, I'm never in love with anybody other than Rob Gronkowski. Um, everybody else is always expendable. Um, I'm willing to trade him. And eventually I even traded Rob Gronkowski off of all my teams too. It just, I had him for eight years instead of two years. Um, So yeah, I think people should pivot off of receivers earlier, especially if it's okay if they don't have a lot of raw total yardage as a rookie, but if they're, if like their yards per route run is really bad, or if they're struggling to get on the field, or if, like whatever happened to Rondale Moore, where he almost had like negative average depth of target. I think he had, he he finished the year with, I think 75 air yards, um, which is, I mean, that's, I think like the second lowest would be like Jonu Smith. He's, he has less air yards than Jonu Smith. Um, and they basically used him like a running back, except without any of the carries, they just used him in the receiving role of a running back. And, 
I don't know what went on with Rondale more, but I'd be pivoting off because it's a risk. You know, you had the mulligan. His value was kind of protected for a year. If he doesn't show stuff pretty immediately in year two, it's going to enter free fall. And I don't want to eat that risk. If if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I've, I sold early on Devontae Adams. Uh, you know, I traded him away for Dion Lewis, and I was happy with that for like eight weeks. And then Lewis got hurt. Um, and it sucks. And I wish I had Devonta Adams on my team still, but that's, that's a risk I'm willing to run. If you stack that Devonta Adams trade up against all of the similar trades that I made using the same thought process where I wound up making it like a bandit, I think I'm still net positive, uh, over my career. So yeah, I don't, I think one of the, the, the worst mistakes is just sticking to a player too long. I'm, I'm always trying to turn over guys who are not producing for whatever I can get. And I'm always trying to turn over guys who are producing for whatever I can get. Just always be looking to move. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, and, and in that same vein, um, how about a, a quarterback, like um, let's, let's talk Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields guys who definitely disappointed in year one. Uh, you know, lots of people like to point fingers at the coaching staff and say, well, you know, tough situation for him to be in. What do, what are you thinking about those guys in year two? So I haven't looked at this in a little bit. It's been maybe five or six years since I looked at it, but from like 2000 to 2015, um, the only quarterback I'm pretty sure who was not top 12 for fantasy within one of his first two seasons as a starter who then later went on to become fantasy relevant was Drew Brees. And he was basically the only guy. And even he, Drew Brees kind of gets a little bit of a pass because he um, didn't play full seasons his first two years. He played a full season his first year. He played 11 games his second year, but wasn't looking great. And then his third year as a starter, um, he was lighting it up. He was easily top 12. Um, but even guys like Gus Farratt, Gus Farratt was quarterback 12 his second year as a starter for fantasy. Um, if guys don't show it within two years, the odds of them ever showing it are very, very, very low. Um, now, oh, somebody in chat said Kirk Cousins. Uh, let me check Kirk Cousins because he was on the bench. I'm talking specifically as a starter. Um because there are several guys like Aaron Rodgers was not top 12 in any of his first three years because, you know, he was stuck behind Brett Favre. He didn't play any. Kirk Cousins was quarterback eight in his first year as a starter, according to pro football reference. Um, yeah. It, quarterback 12 in fantasy is not really that high of a bar to clear. If you're playing 14, 15, 16 games. And if you can't clear it, it's a really, really, really bad sign. Um, uh, sometimes I'll be flexible by when I say they should be showing something, you know, if Trevor Lawrence comes out and he has kind of like a Ben Roethlisberger rookie year where the volume isn't there, the total production isn't there, but he's efficient with what he's doing. Sure. I'll keep him. I'll hold him. I'll give him another chance. But otherwise, if I had fields, Lance Lawrence, um, I, they would be on a very, very short leash. Um, even by week eight, if they're not really starting to show signs of being fantasy relevant now, I would be moving off. I would be 
pivoting off and seeing what I could get. And maybe the market's not there. If the market's not there, maybe I hold just because, you know, I'm not going to trade them for nothing. But I would definitely be looking into what I could get. Totally makes sense. So you, they've been put on notice, it sounds like, by Adam. Definitely. So uh, it, I, I found it interesting that you, want, you put uh, Trey Lance in there in that same conversation, even though he really only started a couple games last year. Yeah. You know, it's all I always say I'm the heuristics guy, uh, which are loose rules of thumb. I mean, I there's not really anything formal about my process. Um, if Lance is looking pretty decent, you know, maybe he gets a stay of execution. Maybe I extend a little bit more leeway. Um, but, you know, I know Pat Mahomes is an unfair standard compared to, but, you know, Pat Mahomes was league MVP his second year. You know, he started two games as a rookie and then he was MVP. I don't think it takes as long to get acclimated as people tend to think. People talk about how long the learning curve is at quarterback and at tight end. It's true at tight end too, by the way, you hear all the time about how long the learning curve is at tight end. And it's true that rookie tight ends rarely do anything. But if you look at basically any of the great tight ends of the last 30 years, they were pretty much all relevant as, as sophomores by year two. Um, you know, Ben Coates. Let me check Ben Coates. I know Wesley Walls wasn't. But, you know, they're the exceptions that kind of prove the rule. Yeah, Ben Coates was year three. Um, so there are a couple exceptions. But by and large, if a guy's going to do it, he's going to do it sooner than you think. Totally makes sense. Uh, I've, I've, I've been saying the same thing for years. I mean, you know, players that are really good tend to be precocious as well. Uh, you know, it's not like a, a long ramp up uh, for sure. Uh, and I, I find it interesting in like dynasty startups too, that, um, you know, people are still jumping on uh, Trevor Lawrence uh, as early as they are. Like he's generally, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, quarterback 9, 10, 11, something like that in a dynasty yeah. startup, you know, going ahead of Matthew Stafford, <laughs> going ahead of Aaron Rodgers, uh, going ahead of Derek Carr. Uh, I, I, I guess I even question about whether he should go ahead of Mac Jones. Um, what do you think? What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like Mac Jones. He wasn't super productive, but that's another one of my heuristics is that if a quarterback's good, he's going to be productive at some point. You know, there is a time when Ben Roethlisberger was a low volume passer in a run and defense team. There was a time when Tom Brady was a low volume passer on a run and defense team. There is a time when Russell Wilson was a low volume passer on a run and defense team. And then these guys, they put up like a ton of top five quarterback finishes between them because when a guy's on his rookie deal, sure, you can have a low volume passer on a run and defense team. When the rookie deal's up, you can't afford to keep running the ball 60% of the time. You can't afford to keep relying on your defense. You're paying him too much money for that. If Mac Jones is a good quarterback, he's going to be a productive quarterback. And early returns based on last year suggest he's the best bet from that class to be a good quarterback, to, to actually be good. You know, he's probably the most likely guy 
right now if I'm taking bets to be a 10-year starter in the NFL. Um, so in that respect, especially in two quarterback leagues, he's the guy who I would want. Um, in one quarterback leagues, I can see arguments for the upside of somebody with more running ability, like a Fields, a Lance, even a Lawrence. Um, but I think that uh, that's an interesting debate. And like you, I I would not be taking Lawrence as the eighth or ninth quarterback off the board. I thought it was a fine pick as a rookie, but part of the reason it's a fine pick as a rookie is because, again, they have that mulligan built in where even if he has one of the worst rookie seasons of the last 20 years, which he did, he's still going to be very highly valued afterwards. And if you start to get cold feet, if you start to get worried that the bottom's about to drop off, you can recoup most of the cost you paid. So basically you just got a free option. You got a free look at, at what you had, and then you got, you could decide whether you wanted to keep it or move on. Yeah, totally true. I mean, you can, you can get a first plus for Lawrence, or at least you should be able to in a super flex, you know, even now. Oh, easily. Yeah, I'm sure. Especially with this quarterback draft class, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to be on the clock very early in the rookie draft this year thinking, would I rather take Kenny Pickett or would I rather take a chance on Trevor Lawrence? And I, personally, I'd rather take a chance on Trevor Lawrence than Kenny Pickett even now. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you could probably get a, a very high first round pick for Trevor Lawrence if you wanted one of the wide receivers or uh, hey, maybe even make a run at Brees Hall. I, I don't play in many super flex leagues. I don't know where he's going, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, no, I think Trevor Lawrence, I mean, if you look at, we, we discussed the, Rotoviz uh, Triflex uh, format, which we play on on FFPC with the, um, it's a super flex with three wide receivers, and I mean you see Lawrence going absurdly high. Do you think that that's a a, a problem that is like a general dynasty player problem where it's kind of hard to put away your priors um, when addressing uh, younger players when you actually have a lot of data in front of you? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think. It a lot of it's just people haven't really dug into the base rates. Um, you know, cases where a guy starts slow and turns it around tend to be more memorable. You know, we remember the Donovan McNabs. We remember the John Elways. We remember the Troy Aikmans. We forget the Rick Myers. Um, so something called the availability heuristic says we tend to estimate how common something is by how easy it is to think of examples, right? So we tend to think that like, um, I don't know, like kidnappings we think are extremely common because every time there's a kidnapping, it's on the news and we can think of examples of that more easily than like children dying due to improperly installed car seats. But the latter is way more common. It's just the availability heuristic is messing with our heads. Uh, and I think a lot of that goes on in Dynasty 2, where the outliers are so memorable and, and so salient that they kind of skew our perception of what the actual odds are. Um, so my process, I always try to start with, like, what are the real base rates here? What are, historically, what are the real odds that something actually happens, that this guy becomes good? Um, and I can adjust from there, but I always want to know the odds first. Uh, I can say, I think Trevor Lawrence is going to be different. I think he was such a good prospect that I'm willing to overlook that terrible rookie year. But I want to know the odds first. Yeah, totally makes sense. So 
Real quick, uh, before we get into our, our, our next question, let's make sure that uh, if you are on the, if you're watching the YouTube right now, make sure you've already hit the like button. Uh, make sure you've already subscribed if you haven't done that. Uh, if you're catching us on the podcast, uh, we would really appreciate it if you would like us, subscribe, do whatever it takes to uh, make sure that podcast downloads every time. Uh, so it's always in your queue. And, uh, you know, if, if you, if you always are on one format and never on the other, Hey, we appreciate it. If you even just come over and, uh, you know, say hi on YouTube and just, uh, just hit that like once anyway, uh, you know, it's available even after, uh, we do it live here. So, you know, for those of you who are a little bit less familiar with the YouTube, uh, you can catch it anytime and you can hit that like button anytime. So please make sure you're doing that. And then also let's uh, talk real quickly about uh, one of our sponsors, the FFPC. Uh, I mean, Theo, they are firing on all cylinders here. Uh, I mean, just literally every kind of draft you can want. Uh, we we have best ball tourneys, two different kinds. We've got, uh, you know, the, the regular best ball tourney, and then we've got the super flex best ball tourney. We've got dynasty startups. You can do triflex. You can do standard. You can do super flex. Uh, you can do best ball. You can do combinations of those. Uh, and then don't forget about, we've got the Football Guys Players Championship. 350 bucks gets you an entry. 500000 a half milli for a grand prize. And then, of course, if you're into the big bucks, uh, the main event, uh, $1 million grand prize. Cost you about $1,900, $2,000 to get in depending on whether you're doing it live or online, but uh, definitely worthwhile. And if you've never been out to Vegas, uh, the, the FFPC runs a great show out in Vegas. Theo and I are out there every year, so definitely make sure that you, uh, if you if you get a chance, come on out. It'll be worth it. You'll love it. Um, I mean, I, I went out back in 2013, been hooked ever since. Theo, what was your first year out there? Uh I went a few years back and then I kind of had a, a little hiatus. Um, there was COVID, the COVID year, they canceled it. Um, yeah. But last year was a blast. Uh, Dan and I took down a main event league. Uh, we won it. And uh, we're, we're heading back there this year. We're, we're going to be splitting the team. So if, if you guys want to go head to head against Dan and I, we're going to be drafting Friday, the Friday night uh, draft uh, for the main event. Um, and Dan, we have a pretty fun uh, football guys draft uh, next week, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, we're doing what we call the hard way. It's a, um, it, as Theo said, it's a football guys draft. So we're, we're drafting for the football, football guys players championship. I guarantee that the winner of the $500,000 grand prize is not going to come from this league because it's ridiculous uh, who is in this league. I mean, we're talking Dwayne McFarland. We're talking about two-time FFPC winner, Abib. Um, we're talking about... Um, Austin, Austin Martin, Martin. yeah, won the nope. playoff challenge before. I mean, it, you know, the list just goes on and on and on. So it's it's insane. Um, we will be live streaming that as well. So make sure you check that out. That's going to be on next Tuesday night. And there was a very prestigious winner of the league last year. So we don't we don't need to talk about that one. <laughs> I I managed I managed to take that one down. And, yes, uh, yes, you did, Theo. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to it again this year. So that that's uh, that's always a blast. It's like it's like pulling teeth being in that draft, but it's just awesome and it's uh, a lot of just fantastic players. So I'm really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, you you and I were both in the playoffs, so that was absolutely we were we were head we were head to head that one that one game was uh, a yes. like a 200, 200 uh point outburst. It was um, I think you had a very high scoring game as well, so we had like a classic playoff game, and um, I managed to win the championship. So it was a uh, it was a really really fun run. I, I doubt I can repeat, but I'm gonna try my best. Yeah, I don't I don't remember exactly what my score is, but I do remember it was very disappointing to lose with that score. So yeah. It was a it was a good job on by you with uh, your your lineup just came out and absolutely crushed that week so uh, but but for sure tons and tons of fun um, so Theo where do you want to go next um, I'd love to talk about all the wide receiver movement um, we've seen this off season um, and kind of the 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 trickle down effect um, what's your overall thoughts to to the we can kind of take a step back to the big name wide receivers moving so often this off season. Um, it seemed like it was big move after big move. Um, you know, we had Tyreek Hill, we had AJ Brown. I mean, we had countless guys switching teams this year. What's your, what's your kind of thoughts of the overall big picture of teams going after these kind of superstar wide receivers? So, you know, every year, like a wide receiver signs a record-breaking contact contract and everybody comes out and they're like, Oh, you know, this is crazy. They're resetting the market. Um, but people largely just don't get how contracts work in the NFL. Basically most contracts in the NFL, they're largely slotted, right? Teams have worked out over time that we think this type of player is worth this type of money. And so when a top wide receiver is ready for an extension, um, like a true top three kind of wide receiver, Antonio Brown, Julio Jones, um, AJ Green, they get about 9.5% of the cap at the time of signing. That's their annual salary, right? So if the cap was 200 million, they'd be getting about 19 million a year. And you know, the cap goes up, so the contracts go up. So every new contract is a record. But if you look at it at as percentage of the cap at time of signing, they're very, very tightly slotted. Even over time, you get guys. Um, I mean, here, actually, I, I keep a sheet with this that I've um, uh, that I've been updating for, I think, like seven or eight years, um, just because I I'm a big believer in revealed preference where like if the NFL says this guy's worth this much, then I think, okay, he's probably worth that much. It's just like being a draft capital truth or it's just for free agency too. Um, but so for instance, you know, Des Bryant and Demarius Thomas signed an extension in 2015 that gave them 9.77% of the salary cap at the time they signed. Mike Wallace, when he hit free agency and the Dolphins gave him that huge deal in 2013, got 9.76% of the cap at the time he signed. DeAndre Hopkins, when he did his extension with Houston, got 9.70% of the cap at the time he signed. Um, and so all of these things are very tightly slotted and a very narrow band. And most of the negotiation is over what percentage is going to be guaranteed? You know, how many years is it going to be? Um, there's some negotiation on that. But by and large, the annual salary is the annual salary. Um, and the exceptions to this have proven to be outliers. Calvin Johnson, when he got his mega, mega, mega extension in 2012 or 2013, um, 
completely blew the slotting system off the map. It, he was nowhere near. I forget exactly what he got, but it was just not in the same universe. And the league basically ignored it. You know, the next time somebody came up for an extension, they said, well, this is the slotting system. We're just going to ignore Calvin Johnson. Like, he doesn't fit it. They they did something crazy there. We're just going to ignore it. This offseason, people have been acting like it's the Calvin Johnson thing. You know, um, uh, Kirk Cousins got, or not Kirk Cousins, Christian Kirk got um, that big deal in Jacksonville. And people are like, oh, wow, the Jaguars ruined the wide receiver market because of Kirk Cousins. But it wasn't just the Jaguars because of Christian Kirk. I'm going to I I'll probably call him Kirk Cousins one more time. So I'll apologize in advance. Sorry, Kirk Cousins, Christian Kirk. Um, it wasn't just the Jaguars. The week before that, Mike Williams signed a three year extension. They gave him nine point six two percent of the cap at the at the time of signing. He signed for Des Bryant and Demarius Thomas money. And whatever you think about Mike Williams, he's not a comparable wide receiver to Demarius Thomas when he was coming off of three straight 1,400-yard seasons. He's not in the same ballpark as Des Bryant when Des Bryant's coming off a 16-touchdown season. So Mike Williams was about a percentage higher than he should have been. And then um, Christian Kirk, who I definitely got it right that time, was about a percentage higher than he should have been. Uh, DJ Moore signed for 9.92%, which his closest comp was Julio Jones in 2015. Based on past history, he probably should have gotten a percentage less. And so what we're seeing is the market has just completely changed. Like the market is different now. Everybody is getting about a percentage more than they would have under the old paradigm. And what we're seeing is there are some teams who buy into this new paradigm and think, Yes, this is the appropriate value for wide receivers in today's NFL. And there are some teams who say, no, the old values were appropriate. These new values are overpays. Uh, and if you overpay for players, it comes back and it bites you. And so I think the reason we're seeing a lot of movement is we're seeing teams who believed in the old system who had great wide receivers. And of course, the wide receivers all believe in the new system. They believe in the system that gets them that extra three million dollars a year from wherever they were whether they're um whether they're christian kirk or mike williams or dj moore or um tyree kill or Devonte adams up and down the entire range so the wide receivers want that extra one percent and so there's they're willing to hold out for it and there are teams out there that are willing to give it to them so the teams that have the good wide receivers say that's too much and that's why we're seeing so many trades uh, and I tend to think that the old numbers were about right. I have a feeling that Miami, Oakland, these teams that are paying so much for a wide receiver and then paying them above what was the settled market rate, um, I think they're overpaying. Um, and I think they're going to regret it down the line. But that's that's why I think we're seeing so much movement right now is because there seems to be this whole battle of paradigms playing out in the league right now. And five years down the road, I think we're either going to be back in the old slotting system or we're going to have this new slotting system and it's going to be the new normal going forward. And I'm curious to see, I tend to think the current the new system will be the new normal just because I have a hard time seeing the wide receivers giving up that money now that they're getting it and settling for less. I think whoever hits the market next is going to want 
to be on the new Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, DJ Moore pay scale and not the old, you know, Julio Jones, um, Des Bryant, Demarius Thomas pay scale. Shout out to 1912 um, who had a question. Your 9% figure, does that also apply to like year two and three? Or are you specifically looking at like the year one that they're signing that contract? That's just year one. Um, okay. And there's, it seems like a pretty simplistic measure. You, it seems like you should value the contract about whatever. But like I said, if you look at contracts this way, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that this is what the NFL is doing. And the other thing that the negotiation points aren't really over salary so much as over, you know, okay, we think you're in this alpha 1A tier, which means we're going to give you 9.6% of the cap, 9.7% of the cap. Um, but we think you're better than Mike Wallace. So we're going to guarantee 60% instead of 40%. Or, you know, we're going to give you a three-year deal so that you'll hit free agency before you turn 30 and you can cash in a second time. Or There's negotiation around that. Um, and you also see that wide receivers who hit free agency tend to make more than wide receivers who sign extensions, obviously, because there's there's more bidding in free agency. Um but by and large, it's just uh, take your average per year, you know, subtract out any money that's not likely to be earned. Uh, like the last year on the Tyree Kill deal is totally fake. He's not going to get that last year. So strip that out, calculate the new average per year, and divide it by the cap for the year that he signs. And that's the slotting system for the most part. Okay, makes sense. So I, I guess my question on that would be, uh, you know, since we're talking about it in terms of percentages, uh, the salary cap really then becomes a sort of a zero sum game. So if they, you know, if these teams think they have money to pay wide receivers more, they must be planning to pay some other position less. Fair to say. Yeah, that's that's why I think that the old system was good. Uh, so I make a joke that like only three people in the world would ever get that that, you know, when you get down to it, football is really just an iterated blotto game. And, um, but blotto, a blotto game, it's a game theory game, um, that, that, you know, it's not a game that people actually play, but it's like game theorists come up with, imagine this game, um, that we can apply this, these concepts to. And, um, but it's a resource allocation game that like you have two teams, two competitors with the same amount of resources. And the basic upshot is, Whoever allocates their resources the most efficiently wins. Um, and basically, teams have a fixed pool of dollars. They have $200 million to spend. And the league has a fixed pool of wins. There's 17 times 16. There's 272 regular season wins. Up for grabs. Okay? And so 32 teams times $200 million is with uh, $6.4 billion divided by 272. And you can say it costs a certain number of dollars per win. Over the course of the year, teams are going to spend X dollars per win. The teams who can get more wins for fewer dollars are going to be the good teams. The teams who can get fewer wins for more dollars are going to be the bad teams. And so when you're signing a guy in extension, that's what it comes down to, is Tyreek Hill, we're paying him an amount where he needs to give us basically one half win over replacement to justify this cost. Is Tyreek Hill going to do that? 
And if he is going to do that, then he's underpaid. He's adding surplus value to your team. Your team just got better. If he's going to give you 0.4 wins over replacement, 0.4 is a lot. That makes him like a top 10, top 15 player in the NFL. Uh, I don't I don't know the exact values, but you know he's a top player in the NFL, but your team still got worse adding him because you spent more than, than that was worth, um, and you're not allocating your resources efficiently. And so we'll see again over the coming years how this plays out. But I tend to think it's going to be one of those things where the teams that are paying these receivers so much money are going to be worse than the teams that are that are trading these receivers away and going with cheaper options. I think that that, that money, that marginal dollar that's being spent um, is going to be a lot more effective when it's allocated somewhere else um, in terms of the bottom line, wins and losses, which is which is what teams need to be prioritizing here. Basically, the Billy Bean theory, uh, except uh, in in NFL. I, I love that. That was that's uh, a great way of looking at it. Yeah, I say on Twitter that let's imagine that Tyreek Hill is worth twenty seven million a year. Let's just stipulate that that his contributions to a franchise are worth twenty seven million dollars a year, um, and let's ignore synergy effects you know, like he might be worth more to one team than to another. And let's just simplify it. And let's just stipulate Tyreek Hill is worth exactly $27 million a year. If you trade a first and second round pick for the right to give Tyreek Hill $27 million a year, you have overpaid by a first and a second round pick. Like by definition, if he's worth 27 million, then anything you pay above 27 million is how much you overpaid by. Um, and I'll be curious to see if more teams start thinking like that. Uh, sometimes I get pushback when I suggest it, but but to me that seems pretty straightforwardly true. Um, I'll be curious to see how roster management evolves over the coming years because you're seeing, I mean, you have been seeing for the past 10 years a lot of evolution in how teams are valuing picks and how they're valuing players and how they're valuing cap space. Um, and we're going to see a lot more of it. And, and I really like, I mean, I love football, but I love this, um, like this meta aspect to football too. Wondering where's the league going to go next? What are the new trends going to be? So I'm excited about that too. Um, just speaking from a, a broad perspective, you have certain fantasy players who don't like investing in, in wide receivers on new teams, the free wide receivers who are free agent signings. Some people automatically fade that. There's others who fade, you know, any kind of movement whatsoever. Do you think based on the overall amount of moves, that's um, kind of an old fallacy that should kind of go out the window? Or is that something that, that you're still kind of looking at? Um, I don't know if that's anything you've ever adhered to, um, but just curious about, about that. I don't know how long um, y'all have been playing fantasy football. When I started uh around 2002 like the received wisdom of the day is never get wide receivers changing teams all or it was all wide receivers changing teams suck except for henry ellard um and that was like the received wisdom um and you know we talk about markets updating and correcting and uh that's in 2002 we were not too far removed from the advent of free agency, you know, players just weren't changing teams before 1995. 
like our sample size to look at was minuscule. Um, and as we've Good gotten a bigger sample, B free agency. Yeah, absolutely. I, of course, wide receivers who change teams are not doing anything. Like nobody's changing teams, and and if the original team was letting him go, odds are really good that, you know, they just aren't that good. Um, we've seen a lot more since then. You know, we saw Terrell Owens change teams four or five times and light it up everywhere. We saw Randy Moss set the single season touchdown record his first season with a new team. But we even saw, you know, like second tier guys, Lavernus Coles and Santana Moss ping ponging back and forth between Washington and New York and, you know, tearing it up everywhere. Um, we see a lot. I think we see a lot of receivers who are excelling in their first season with the new team. Like most things, it it comes back to, is this player good? If so, they'll probably produce. If not, they probably won't. And that's not really a satisfying insight because that doesn't simplify anything. Is this player good is the hardest question of all to answer. But I think it lets us focus in the right direction. I don't, I don't worry so much when a guy's changing teams about, you know, how other players have done changing teams. I worry about, is this player good? AJ Brown, I think is very good. I think he'll probably be fine in Philadelphia. Um, I like Devonte Smith still, even after AJ Brown changes teams. Cause like I said, life finds a way. I don't know what it looks like six months ago. If somebody told you AJ Brown would be out of Tennessee, you wouldn't have believed it. Things change fast. Um, but at the end of the day, if a guy's good, he's going to find a way to produce. And if he's not good, he's probably not. Um, and getting bogged down on a lot of the other stuff, I think, is is losing the forest for the trees. Maybe we could stay with some of these um, team situations. You mentioned A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith. How about Devonta Adams um, coming to Las Vegas? Um we all we all kind of figure he's going to be a big focal point of that offense, which I, I think is is a foregone conclusion. How how about the tertiary effect where you have Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro? How how do you see Devonte Adams kind of affecting uh, affecting their value in production, if if at all? It probably hurts Renfro more than um, Waller, I would think. Although I am kind of curious about pricing out Renfro and seeing. I um so when I was working on my model, um, my sophomore model uh, earlier th in the year, I think in midseason I started developing it out, um, and and the idea was that it's inefficient to scout players coming into the NFL because the NFL is going to scout them for you anyway, but there could be value to be had in scouting players who have been in a year and seeing if you can reach the right conclusion faster than your league mates. Because um, the goal is not to be more right than your league mates. At the end of the day, everybody winds up being equally right about everyone. It's just who gets there first, right? At the end of the day, everybody thought Randy Moss was good. Everybody thought Randy Moss was an amazing wide receiver. But the guys who thought that first made a big profit, and the guys who thought that last did not. You know, at the end of the day, everybody thought Nikhil Harry was a bust, but the guys who thought it first were okay. And the guys who thought it last lost their shirt. So the goal is to, is to think it first. So I was building out the sophomore model. And one of the things that jumped out was like Hunter Renfro is scoring shockingly well in this. Um, and at first I'm like, is, 
the model wrong? Everything else looks okay. It, why does the model love Hunter Renfro so much? And then Hunter Renfro went a t on a tear in the second half of the year. Um, and I had tweeted when I was doing the model, like, you know, Hunter Renfro keeps showing surprisingly high. I need to make some offers. I need to try and get some Hunter Renfro shares. I think it's probably just, just like a fluke. I, I don't really buy into it that much, but the cost is cheap enough that with these strong indicators, like I might as well grab a share or two and, and see for this cost. And I couldn't get any anywhere. Um, I tried for a bit, not super hard, but I tried. Um, but I might try to buy again because again, the, the peripheral indicators are there. I think Hunter Renfro is probably a pretty good player, not like Devonte Adams good, but I think he's probably a pretty good wide receiver. I would be interested um, if his value took a big hit when Adams arrived. Um, this might provide another buying opportunity. Uh, I, I think it will. Yeah, but it's just hard to see a path to relevance with Devontae Adams and Darren Waller there. And I mean, but the whole point of the, the Dr. Ian Malcolm hypothesis is you don't need to see a path to relevance. You know, I don't know. I didn't know that the key to unlocking AJ Brown as a rookie was going to be benching Mariota for Tannehill. And all of a sudden they turn into one of the most efficient passing offenses of the last 20 years. I didn't see that coming, but you don't, you don't need to see it coming to profit from it. Two other sophomore wide receivers. Um, we saw, we saw the Hollywood, Hollywood Brown move to Arizona and maybe we could touch on that in a, shortly, but you're kind of, your thoughts on Rashad Bateman as a de facto wide receiver one now in Baltimore and your expectations. Uh, and also maybe you could touch on Amon Ross St. Brown, who's been sort of a polarizing guy this, this off season in dynasty circles where he flashed so much, but we're, we're kind of projecting a lot of people are projecting, you know, a lot of regression and, and whatnot. I um, liked Bateman a lot as a rookie. Um, I have a friend who was who talked himself into Bateman over Smith and Waddle in the rookie draft. And I was not there with him, but I did not have Bateman far behind Smith and Waddle. Um, and the big thing was the draft capital, of course. Um, I think he was a really good prospect. He had good draft capital. Again, the guys who I trust to evaluate those sort of things all really liked him. Um, so I liked him a lot as a rookie. He was not great in my model, but it wasn't like kiss of death territory. Um, I wish he had done a bit more as a rookie, but I'm not disqualifying him based on the results. It's not Terrace Marshall or Josh Palmer. Um, so I was pretty interested in him still coming into the off season. And then I think revealed preference is a big thing where teams don't tell you how they feel about players but if you pay attention, they kind of do. And when Baltimore was willing to ship off Marquise Brown, partly I think that was just because Marquise Brown wanted out and Baltimore couldn't do anything about it. They probably would have rather keep, kept Marquise Brown around, although I'm sure they were happy with the return. But also, to me, that suggests, hey, maybe they're pretty comfortable with Bateman as their guy because he's the guy now. It's it's the Bateman and Andrews show. Um and that was good, too, because it's it's hard to support three targets in an offense like Baltimore. They did a great job supporting just two. I think Andrews and Hollywood Brown were both top 10 in the NFL in targets last year. Um, but there's really no way to add Bateman into the mix and make that math work. Um, 
So I think it was a really good thing for Bateman's value. I think it was probably a pretty good thing for Brown's value. Um, he's like I said, he was top 10 in the NFL in targets last year. And that's definitely not going to happen in Arizona, but just the fact that they were willing to pay so much to get him suggests that he's probably in their long-term plans. Um, and it kind of makes me revise my opinion of him as a player a little bit. Uh, so that, I think that was a great trade for, for Bateman's sake and for Brown's um, in terms of Amon Ra St. Brown. Um, he, a guy I like to compare him to a lot is um, Elijah Moore. Uh, who I think is a better receiver and who I liked more as a prospect. But if you look at it just statistically, you look just at their production, they basically were identical as rookies. It's just Elijah Moore was six weeks earlier and then he got hurt. But they both had that super slow start and then they both just went off. And um, they kind of both have the same thing going on where like quarterback play wasn't great, but they were market share hogs in a team with no other targets. And um, in my model, they came out with nearly identical scores. And I obviously prefer again because of the draft capital and because he's got that stamp of approval from the people who I, who I trust to evaluate wide receivers. Um, but Amon Ross St. Brown was a lot cheaper than Elijah Moore, you know, and now both Moore and um, Brown St. Brown see their teams draft a rookie wide receiver in the top 12. And it's interesting that Moore held his value really well. And St. Brown, everybody I think was looking for an excuse to move off of. And so he tends to be falling. Um, I, I like him. I would, I would take some speculative pieces on, I get, I get all the reasons why people doubt the production, but at the end of the day, the production is the production. There have been a lot of receivers who have been in situations that favorable and who haven't done anywhere near as much with it. Um, so I care a bit less about how the production looks and more about just the fact that the production was there. No, I agree completely on that. Um, and then how about the situation in Miami? I, I know you're a fan of Jalen Waddle. Um, how do you expect, um, it to kind of shake out with, you know, two, two, you know, very talented wide receivers um, in that offense. And, and how would you be uh, viewing Waddle for this season? This is definitely one where I've got to go to the Ian Malcolm hypothesis, because I look at that offense and I see two of the most talented deep threats in the NFL, along with a quarterback who can't throw deep. And I'm like, what's this going to look like? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't have expected Waddle to play his role last year to look like the way it looked i i would have expected a lot more deep usage um but early on he was uh so similar to to rondale moore in terms of usage that i was joking that it was rondale rondale moore we should call rondale less and jalen waddle we should call rondale more um because it was all that super low average depth of target super high reception total weird stuff um yeah, I don't really know how they're going to coexist. And that's kind of the beauty of my approach is I I can wash my hands of it and say, I don't have to know. I think Waddle's good. You know, he's got the draft capital. He had the great rookie season. Again, the people who I trust and they like him as a prospect. Um, so I am a big Waddle fan. I, I, I don't really see how it's going to shake out. But I tend to believe 
Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle are both really good, so they're both going to get theirs. Um, and I'm happy to to buy in if anybody is a little nervous and looking to move off. Um, I've gone back and forth over which of the two I would prefer. Um, and I think it probably depends on the team around them. Um, I think they're both probably top 10, top 12 dynasty wide receivers still. Totally makes sense. So what do you, what do you do with uh, teams like the chiefs and the Packers where it's kind of like, you know, the talent flowed away and there's questions about how much talent really got added in. Um, how are you handling those situations? Yeah, I get that's why um, Sky Moore is going so high because uh, everybody again is looking at the situation. Um, at the end of the day, well, I mean, look, just look at Mecole Hardman, right? Mecole Hardman got drafted in the perfect situation. What did he do with it? Nothing, because he's not any good. Um, you know how many how many wide receivers have come through in these great situations? On I, we mentioned the Patriots receivers before. Um, Hardman, uh, Jeff Janis, if you want to go into the deeper cuts on the Packers and how many, how many wide receivers have gone through green Bay other than Devonte Adams, who just couldn't stick and couldn't do anything despite playing with Aaron Rodgers Cause they just weren't any good. Um, or they weren't good enough. Every, every receiver in the NFL is good, but they weren't NFL good. They weren't good enough. Um, I hope that there's somebody good in there, but we've seen good quarterbacks have good seasons without any standout. Tom Brady won an MVP in 2010 with, you know, one of his, one of the best two or three seasons of his career. Um, I think it was his only unanimous MVP um, with, I think his leading receiver had, like 800 yards. That was the year Wes Welker was recovering from that torn ACL late the year before. And everybody was shocked. He was even playing because no player had come back that quickly from an ACL tear to be like anything. And the team traded for Dion branch from Seattle at mid season. And they had two rookie tight ends in Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez back when everybody's like rookie tight ends, never do anything. And um, I think Danny Woodhead, they got got cut by the Jets and the Patriots added him. And they had all these bits and pieces, all these guys who kind of had, you know, 600 yards here, 700 yards there, five touchdowns here, seven touchdowns there. And none of them were really that great for fantasy. And Tom Brady was the unanimous MVP. Just because the quarterback's productive doesn't mean individual receivers are going to be productive. Um, and this always ignores the possibility that maybe the quarterback's not productive. What if Mahomes gets hurt? What if Rodgers falls off the cliff? Um, so I'm not going to be drafting. Normally, I hate the somebody's got to catch the ball logic. Um, because no, no, somebody does not have to catch the ball. I was looking at it one year and it was like December and the Jets leading receiver had 250 receiving yards. Nobody has to catch the ball. Maybe nobody catches the ball in an Aaron Rodgers offense or a Pat Mahomes offense. It's more likely that somebody's going to catch the ball, but the good quarterbacks are more capable of spreading it around. 
I don't know. I'm not going to overdraft a guy just because he's paired with a league MVP quarterback. If they're good, they're going to be good. And if they're not, it's not going to matter. Right. So vacated targets, definitely a fallacy. I mean, I don't know. I, what do, what do we mean by fallacy? Like Aaron Rodgers is going to throw the ball 550 times or whatever. I don't know. That was like the 16 game average. I'm I, still not thinking in 17 game terms yet, but 600 times, whatever. He's going to throw the ball 600 times. And um, I would say that all of those throws is going to have a target, but it's Aaron Rodgers. He's probably going to lead the league in throwaways. So uh, 550 of those are going to have targets. They're going to go to somebody. Somebody's going to catch the ball there. But just catching the ball isn't enough. You have to catch sufficient balls. And good quarterbacks are going to be able to spread it around. Um, bad players are going to spend more time off the field. There's going to be more rotation. Um, anecdotally, I think bad players tend to get hurt more, uh, which is probably selection bias. I think that like, like if Devontae Adams is 50-50, the team's going to find a way for him to play. If, if um, um, Alan Lazar is already 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, if the, if the best argument, argument for drafting, drafting a guy is somebody has to catch the ball, that's not, that's not a good argument for drafting. Okay. In the 16th round, sure, draft a guy because somebody has to catch the ball. If you're in the 8th, 9th, 10th round, I need more of a positive reason to draft a guy. I think we're having a, a little a little audio uh, issue right there, Dan, at least on my end. Yeah, yeah. Adam's got some feedback going on there, I think. Uh, oh, think sorry about we that. Had. Yeah, same same thing that we had before uh, we got on on the air. So, but of course, you did nothing to fix that, and it it fixed itself. So we're going to hope that it All does right. the same. I pushed a couple buttons. Does that sound? Yeah, better? you're you're back. Yes. You're back. You're back. There you, there you go. go. Yep. I I don't know what I did. I just I just tippity tappity tippity tappity tippity tappity. It's magic. Some, something changed. Good good job, Ed. Speaking of, of offenses in whole, uh, as is there any offense that you see the fantasy community bullish on right now that you could see potentially struggling this season? In terms of like redraft, like stacks Just, and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, like, I'll throw one out there. Uh, Denver. It seems like a lot of people are trying to get exposure to Denver. Um, you know, teams like that where teams are – uh, fantasy players are, are really going in, uh, specifically targeting specific offenses. Is there an offense that you could see um, kind of really letting everybody down this season? I don't know. I mean, any offense could. You know, the, the, we've gone through stretches where the Chiefs offense as a whole was struggling. Um, I I do really like stacking offenses in fantasy football, though. Even bad offenses, just because... So it's called serial correlation. The idea that how one guy performs is correlated with how another guy performs. And when you stack an offense, you get a lot of correlation where all of your guys, if one of your guys is good, it's more likely that all of your guys are good. Um, and that serial correlation greatly increases your chances of finishing in last place. 
and it greatly increases your chances of finishing in first place. Um, but like last place is really not that much worse than third place. You know, it's a little bit worse, but it's not that much worse. But first place is a lot better. So I, I love, um, in theory, stacking up offenses, even a bad offense, because you can do it so cheaply. And then what if everybody's wrong? We had a guy on staff at Football Guys named Steve Buzzard who took down the Millie Maker one week. And um, we were talking to him about it. And he he had played the Buffalo defense. And it was like the Buffalo defense was like the third worst fantasy defense heading into the week. Like they were the cheapest defense. And they just had this monster out of nowhere game. And we were asking like, why? Like what made you pick the Buffalo defense? And he's like, well, I thought they were going to be bad, just like everybody else did. But I figured like 0.5% of teams in the Millie Maker would have the Buffalo defense. And I figured there was a more than 0.5% chance that they would have a monster week this week. Uh, so that's what it was. I thought maybe there was like a 3% chance they would have a monster week. So I thought they were going to be underrepresented. And I think stacking bad offenses can be like that too, where... Okay, Washington's probably not going to be a great offense this year. But if they are a great offense this year, how many teams are going to have a Washington stack? Um, so especially in like best ball mania and some of the big, um, like those huge tilted GPPs, um, I think there's some merit to to even loading up on on crazy out of nowhere groups and just hoping that you're that that everybody is completely wrong and you're the only guy with that stack with the um it's actually um funny we had we were having josh larkey on tomorrow night and he had a did a ton of research on this serial correlation and stacking um showing the benefits of it and and diving into it um and he had a, a lot of similar thoughts as you and he kind of sh showed it uh, and proved it um, and it's funny how you bring up these these lower exposure stacks. I mean, the Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs stack, um, you know, a couple of years back when Diggs' first season is textbook definition. It was a kind of an under-owned stack that cashed for a lot of people. Um, and it was just simply, you know, taking a, a wide receiver at value, combining with his quarterback. And, yeah, it totally happens. And, uh Dan and I have a, a, a full full Minnesota um, stack right now with uh, with Kirk Cousins and and Jefferson and and Thielen and even KJ Osborne. So we're we're looking at that as a as an underutilized stack. So yeah, it's just right. kind of funny because we have you guys back to back nights and uh, it's very similar theories on on this. Yeah, I mean the thing is, you're probably wrong, but we're we're probably wrong about everything, you know. After week four, basically everything that we did in the off season will, will be less than 50% of the weight for the rest of the season. It, I, I compare every year, what better predicts future performance. Um, and on the one hand, I'll have performance to date, you know, how a person scored in the first week in the first two weeks in the first three weeks. And on the other hand, I have uh, preseason ADP, which is the result of all the research we did over the entire off season, all of our off season expectations. And week four is the tipping point after four weeks. All this, all the work we did in the off season, um, is now less valuable than everything we got just in the first couple of weeks of the season. Um, so we're all going to be wrong 
pretty soon. It's not going to be too long before all of everything we know about the NFL is now outdated. Uh, it's about four weeks. And so I like in fantasy football to kind of leverage that and be like, I know that everybody's probably wrong. How can I profit the most? You know, how can I be wrong in the least damaging way possible? Or how can it even be profitable for me for everybody to be wrong? And something like that, where like, we all think that this guy sucks, right? We all think that this offense is going to suck. But what if we're wrong? If we're wrong, I want to be the guy who profits off of that. Um, so yeah, a lot of it, it, and it tends to be a more robust uh, philosophy and approach to fantasy football too, because betting on the fact that you're wrong tends to be a lot cheaper than betting on the fact that you're right. And you'll have the, it has the benefit of you'll be right more often because you're usually wrong. Right. Because, you know, when you're right, most of the time, if you're right and everybody else is right, there's almost right. no, no advantage to be gained. Whereas right. if you're right about something that everybody else is wrong about, or you just took that chance, even if you think you're probably wrong to take that chance, um, you know, it, it works out in your favor because not enough people are taking that chance. So I do it a lot with um, young prospect receivers too. I, I call mm -hmm. them um, uh, YPWAs, uh, YPWUs, young prospects with upside. And it's like your guys who are not like first round um, draft picks in the NFL guys who like, there's a little bit of reason to kind of like them, but like not a ton of reason to love them. Um, you know, like second round picks in their second year who kind of did okay as rookies. Um, and to me, they're kind of just a big undifferentiated mass that like they're all, none of them have a great hit rate, but the, the payoff, if they do hit is so high that I want a couple of them. I want a couple of these dart throw wide receivers because I want the upside that they provide. But some people will like fall in love with a specific one and they'll be like, this guy, this prospect is the guy who's going to break out and be awesome. You know, like. I'm trying to think of even like Rondale Moore, maybe like maybe you're a huge Rondale Moore fan and you're like, this is the guy. Um, and if you believe that, if if you think that you have picked out the right guy, you're going to pay a premium for that guy. Whereas me, I'm just going to I'll happily trade whoever I have that anybody else falls in love with. And at the end of the day, I want to wind up with like the cheapest guys in the bucket. Right. I'll trade all of the hot commodities for the cheapest guys in the bucket, plus a little bit extra. And my hit rate, I figure, is going to be about as good as your hit rate. But I'm banking all that extra stuff, too, because my process is more robust because, you know, I'm not I'm not betting that I'm right. I'm betting that I'm wrong and banking that little extra profit in the process. And then, like I said, at the end of the day, a lot of these unsexy guys wind up hitting at about the same rate anyway. Right, exactly. And the and the thing is, I mean, you know, we only care if we cash. You know, it, it you you want to cash. So whatever whatever the cash line is, and you know, whether you're talking about a, a standalone league or a tournament or whatever, uh, you know, if 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 you hit that cash line, make your money back. Uh, you know, then everything's good. 
but otherwise, I mean, there's no real value to finishing, you know, in, you know, fourth place or whatever the first non-casher happens to be in that particular league or that particular format. And, and the beauty of it too, is in dynasty, if you, if you are not one of the people who cashes, then you really want to do bad because then you get the one-on-one, you know, or, or whatever, you know, maybe, maybe there's a tournament for the one-on-one, but you, you want to, you know, if you're, if you're not going to win the playoffs or if you're not going to significantly cash, then you might as well be in the loser's bracket. You, you sure. recently you recently tweeted about the discrepancy gap um, between dynasty rankings for running backs and redraft rankings for running back. Is there any way we can exploit that in the dynasty market? Well, that wasn't that was just an interesting quirk in in terms of roster building. I mean, it's not really news that like old productive running backs tend to be ranked lower in dynasty. And um, sometimes you get some weird gaps like um, Gabriel Davis is 23. He's ranked. I think he was like 29th in redraft average. I average out a bunch of sources. He was like 29th in redraft and 43rd in dynasty. And my process is Gabe Davis is 23. If he finishes this year as a top 30 wide receiver, he's going to be going a lot higher than 43rd in dynasty next year. Um, You know, if he, if he puts up a thousand yards and seven touchdowns or whatever, he's going to be going higher in dynasty because he's going to be a 40, he's going to be a 24 year old wide receiver coming off of a top 30 finish. Um, and by and large, I think that redraft is a simpler game than Dynasty. Not necessarily an easier game, but a simpler game. Fewer moving parts. I think if there's any uncertain projection, the redraft guys are more likely to be right than the Dynasty guys. Case by case basis. Sometimes the redraft guys will be right. Sometimes the Dynasty guys will be right. But probably 60-40, the redraft guys are going to be right more often. Um, so I like to bet on on young players um, with some decent draft capital behind them who for some reason or another are going higher in redraft than dynasty. Um, Cause even if not, if the player is not that good, if he's productive, if he's as productive as the redraft guys think his value is going to go up. And so you get that production for free plus whatever value gains you get for free. And then if you want to sell, you can sell. Uh, in terms of running backs, yeah, it was just a weird split um, in in my two leagues. I've kind of been getting a little bored with my approach, so I've kind of been trying to change things up a little bit and try new things um, just to make it interesting. Hang on, I'm going to go for a little bit of walk. You guys can come too. Um, I'm trying to change it up just to make things a bit more interesting. And so in one of my leagues, I wound up with... Um, a bunch of old but super productive running backs. I have Aaron Jones and Leonard Fournette and um, Austin Eckler. And then in the other one, it's all young dark throws. Um, I got Swift and Javante Williams and um, Cam Akers and Travis Etienne. Um, And I'm pretty sure... Like right now, I feel about good running back corpse um i'm pretty sure a year from now i'm gonna like one of those a lot more than the other but i'm i'm not sure which is gonna be which (laughs) yep totally 
So it, let's let's get you out of here on this, Adam. Uh, are there any favorite pivots right now in Dynasty where you feel like the value is similar now, but you expect it to change significantly before 2023? Um, I mean, Gabe Davis was my big one. Um, okay. I haven't really looked across the entire league yet. I've, I've just looked at my teams um, and I have a spreadsheet that I update and I just started, I always call it dynasty roster eval season. Um, and I'll tweet out like observations from my spreadsheet, but I always start with my teams kind of come up with an action plan for the off season. You know, I want to get younger at this position. I want to get better at this position. I want to get, um, I need some more exposure to upside here. Uh, and then I can spend the off season executing that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there are any other glaring, weird value discrepancies. Normally, rookies uh, are one of my favorites. Uh, I, th I think rookies tend to be undervalued, but I think the dynasty market, it's like all markets where there are inefficiencies, but they close and they catch up. Um, and the rookie wide receivers are getting drafted a lot higher now than rookies historically have been over the last five to eight years, which is a bummer because they were, you know, super undervalued for the last five to eight years. So that was an easy profit. And I hate when my easy profits close because then I have to find some hard profits. Yeah, though, every now and then uh, another easy profit will open up because everybody's focused yeah. on something else. It's great. And then you can ride it for, for all it's worth for, you know, a little while until it closes. The one nice thing is buying injured players. Um, that one's been around since I started writing about dynasty. That was originally my, the thing that I was known for. Um, and people would, whenever a guy tore his ACL, people would tweet me on Twitter, you know, Hey, do you have any offers out for him yet? Uh, Cause that's what I did is like, you know, people always, not always, sometimes they don't, but sometimes after a guy gets injured, you'll see a huge drop in dynasty value. And anytime that happens, pretty much guaranteed within three to five months, it's going to rebound. I mean, look at Travis Etienne, you know, last year I had, again, one of those late rookie drafts and I got him at 1.09 or 1.10. Uh, after he was going like 1.04 early on and you look at his value now and what's it, you know, like I could probably trade him for the one point. I don't know what I could trade, but it probably pretty high. He's back up in the top 20 dynasty running backs again. Um, and he didn't have to do anything. He just took an entire year off. It, it's a great safe place to park value. He's not going to lose any more value once his ACL is already torn or whatever. You know, what's he going to do? Tara's other ACL? Probably not. It's much less likely to happen than if you were actually on the football field. Um, and then, yeah, it's fun buying at the bottom and then watching that value just creep back up over time. So that's the one. I don't know if that one's ever going to close, that that inefficiency. Um, but the other things I do kind of open and close around. Sometimes I'm hoarding rookie picks. Sometimes I'm trading for vets. It just depends on what the market's doing. Totally makes sense. All right. Well, Adam, we really appreciate you coming on tonight. Uh, and really appreciate you spending a, a, a buck 35 with us. 
all of a sudden I looked up at the clock and I'm like, holy cow, we've been for an hour and a half. So uh, appreciate appreciate your, hey, uh, your willingness to stick around. Easy. I always like going on other people's podcasts. Yeah, I always like going on other people's podcasts because then my only job is talking and talking is super easy. <laughs> there you go. Yes, well, we, we definitely appreciate it. So um, what... Uh, why don't you let people know where to find you? Um, anything that you want to plug and all that on the way out? Uh, yeah, uh, at Adam Harstad on Twitter. Um, and then I always write at footballguys.com. Um, right now, I'm just getting all the returner projections and stuff up and running. So if you're in a return yardage league, if you're one of the uh, 18 guys in one of those, get hype. Uh, and then after that, we'll be uh, trying to ramp up some dynasty stuff for football guys. Awesome. awesome. We look forward to it. Yes. And, and top two is guaranteed on your uh, return yardage performance. So, yes, me and Mike Clay, I'm pretty sure, are the only guys who do full returner projections. Um, so every year after the season, I audit our projections. Um, and I don't want to jinx myself, but I am on quite the run of top two finishes in terms of, of return of projection accuracy. I, I have not finished third yet. So fingers crossed. There you go. Perfect. All right, Theo, why don't you, uh, why don't you let us know, let everybody know uh, what we've got going on tomorrow night and uh, then we'll go ahead and get ourselves out of here. Huh? Uh, tomorrow night at nine o'clock, we have Josh Larkey of FTN fantasy coming on. Um, and then, like Dan alluded to earlier, next week we'll have a, a live show, um, or a somewhat live. Dan, are we going like first round here? Or oh, I, I, I think the plan is if we can put it together, we're going to do a, a, a complete live show here. So Com complete we're gonna, live. Show. We're going to have the whole draft covered. The hard way draft. It'll be. It'll be. It's kind of like the the draft to kind of kick off redraft season. We've been drafting already, but it's kind of like this is the start of the summer. Um, like Dan said, there'll be a lot of, um, very, very talented drafters in that draft and, uh, we're looking forward to it. So we'll be back, um, tomorrow night again, and then next week as well. Yep, absolutely. So again, uh, make sure whatever format you're watching us or listening to us on, make sure you hit the like button, make sure you hit the subscribe button, uh, really helps us out. We appreciate that. We've got a lot of great guests coming over the summer. Um, so make sure you're, you're tuning in for those. Uh, we're going to have some. Some just absolute uh, monster money winners over the summer. You know, people who, who have a ton of skin in the game and who do very well with it. We're also going to have a lot of great dynasty theory, uh, redraft theory, best ball theory, and everything else. And we'll be doing a lot of live drafts as well. So make sure you're tuning in to the GOAT District, Goat District all summer long. And we will catch you all later. You know the Pope listens Dynasty our religion For the blokes missing On all of these trades On all of these plays On all of these grades By the end of the day Y'all getting played So what you gonna do next? Try to fill up that flex Send the homie a text That trash off is the best You try to make it complex Then they text you back Now all of a sudden They don't make any sense <laughs> Broaden your horizons boy Dynasty's not for the Simons boy these trades not for consignment, boy. Respect your opponent, y'all some piranhas, boy. 
This my advice from me to you. Open up your cute little podcast queue. Search up G-O-A-T District, my dude. Pop it in your ear, man. Y'all know what to do. It's the... And I always be traded. Traded. And I always be traded. Traded. And I always be trading. Y'all try to betray them, but first you gotta bait them. Bait